It has been a few weeks since we were last in the book of Genesis and when we were first introduced to really the central character for the last 12 to 13 chapters of Genesis, a man by the name of Joseph. We were introduced to him back in Genesis 37, but I want to start this morning by taking some time to remind you of of five central truths key to understanding the life and story of Joseph. And for full disclosure, because we're going to spend time laying out these five truths, it's going to limit the amount of time we're going to be able to spend in Genesis 39. But I think doing this is helpful. There's a lot of ways you can examine the life of Joseph. There's a lot of ways you can get into the story, into the narrative. For me, I think it's important to set kind of a macro picture, a big picture, five truths about the whole story of Joseph that as we then get into the minutiae, get into the story, get into the details, will be helpful in us keeping things within context. Now, the first truth about Joseph and his story you need to keep in mind is that God had from day one a very important plan for Joseph's life. As we're going to see in the weeks to come, and spoiler alert, while Joseph's life is filled with a series of unexpected twists and turns, by the end of Joseph's story, keep in mind, looking uh, backwards at things from the 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 end back to the beginning, Joseph ends up rising from the pit, from the prison, to a position of incredible power in Egypt. And this happens in his life for a divine reason. Once again, as we work our way through Joseph's life, things will go from, from bad to worse to worse again. But always keep in mind, big picture, where he ends up. He ends up the second most powerful man in all of Egypt. And there was a reason. Knowing via a prophetic dream given to Pharaoh that a severe famine was on the horizon, Joseph ends up being charged with the king with the specific task of preparing Egypt to endure seven years of famine. In actuality, Joseph will not only successfully navigate Egypt through this would-be disaster, But Joseph's faithful stewardship ends up placing Egypt into a position with grain enough, sustenance enough to spare. They made money as a result of it. As such, Joseph's newfound role not only provides a way for his family to be saved from starvation, because this famine not just struck Egypt, it was an entire region. It threw Jacob and his family into peril. But Joseph's position in Egypt will also give him the authority and the power to specifically intervene and act on his family's behalf. In the end, and as the context for literally everything that happens in Joseph's life, never forget, God's plan from day one was to use Joseph to save his family. The second macro point as it pertains to the life of Joseph, is that Joseph had been given a divine revelation from God. God had a plan for his life all along, but this plan had had been revealed through revelation to Joseph. As a teenager, God partially revealed to Joseph what his plan would entail through two specific dreams. We looked at these back in Genesis 37. And while it's true that these dreams were 
light on specifics, especially how it, how it pertained to Joseph being exalted. God had been crystal clear to Joseph that he would ultimately find himself in a position of profound power and prominence of such his family would even recognize. And keep in mind, there is no doubt that these two dreams that Joseph had as a teenager, these dreams, the implications of what Joseph viewed, these promises of God, they had a powerful impact on his life. Now you can debate the prudency of sharing such revelations with a group of brothers who already hated your guts. But you can't dismiss the reality that Joseph was fully convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that the two dreams that he had been given were not only divine in nature, but that God was revealing to him not just his future destiny, but the destiny of his family. Furthermore, as we see Joseph's story unfold, don't forget this really incredible reality. The only revelation that Joseph was personally given by God were those two dreams he has when he's a teenager. Throughout the remaining narrative, you will never see the Lord speaking directly to Joseph as he had done with, let's say, Abraham or his father Jacob. There's no wrestling Never once will you find a record of Joseph hearing from the Lord through an audible voice, being given another vision, or for that matter, receiving a divine appearance. Additionally, Joseph didn't have uh, the aid of the written scriptures or the benefit of the indwelling Holy Spirit as he's going through what he's going through. And beyond all of that, most amazingly, we don't even have mention of Joseph ever receiving another, vision, uh, another dream. He received, he's a man known by dreams. He only has two at the beginning of his life when he's a teenager. That's it. Now, it's true. Part of his ministry will be interpreting the dreams of others. We see him do that with the baker and the butler and Pharaoh. But it seems as though Joseph only possessed the revelation of these two initial dreams, coupled, obviously, with the stories of how God had been faithful in the lives of his fathers. There is no doubt that the nature of these dreams, that the limited revelation they presented stirred Joseph's heart in powerful ways. It's all he was given. God's word had filled his life with meaning, so much so that this revelation would serve to anchor him when his life took unexpected turns. You see, Joseph, keep it in mind, was able to endure both the pit and later his prison because he held fast to the promises that God had made him through his word. Joseph was willing to trust God, trust God's word, even when he had reason to doubt. The third thing you should keep in mind as you look at the life of Joseph, and it might might not be as obvious as you get into the minutia, but Joseph was the whole time continually loved by his father. His father's love never changed, not, why, not one iota during everything he goes through. Now, aside from the fact that Joseph was the favored son of his earthly father, Jacob, 
you can't miss the reality that of all of Jacob's sons, it was Joseph who God specifically chose and commissioned for this task. To be sent to Egypt, to rise to power. Of all of the sons, Joseph was picked out, was isolated, was chosen. Now, I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, but the unique love of God the Father, the love he possessed for Joseph, will become all the more evident when you see Joseph as probably the most powerful type of Jesus in all of the Old Testament scriptures. Now, this idea of Joseph being a picture of Jesus and thus never once the love of the Father diminishing as Joseph goes through the story, that's something that we'll develop in a later study. Fourth point, God's sovereign will yielded incredible suffering in Joseph's life. I'm going to repeat that because that's, that's a tough one, but it's something you need to keep in mind. God's sovereign will yielded incredible suffering in Joseph's life. Obviously, this is a reality of Joseph's story that isn't what we would say palatable to our modern, seeker-friendly model of Christianity. And yet, because we are aided with the knowledge of how Joseph's story ultimately ends, this is the truth. The providence of God and therefore the surety of his will behind every one of Joseph's experiences, independent of human involvement, is absolutely undeniable. God's providential hand in Joseph's life, even when things are terrible, is evident. Now, I don't want to get ahead, but consider the the story arc of Joseph's life. I'm going to give you kind of a summary, a flyby. Joseph was a man of character. Because he's a man of character, he's favored by Jacob. Favored by Jacob, he's subsequently hated by his brothers. Hated by his brothers, he's ultimately rejected by these brothers. Rejected by these brothers, he's sold into slavery. Sold into slavery, he's taken down to Egypt against his will. Taken down to Egypt against his will, he's purchased by Potiphar, a man of influence. Because of Joseph's hard work, he rises to a position of power in Potiphar's home. And yet that position of power makes him the target for Potiphar's wife's sexual advances. Though tempted by Potiphar's wife, Joseph is able to resist her sexual advances. Because he resists her advances, he's falsely accused of rape. Falsely accused of rape, he's thrown into the king's prison. Because of his positive attitude and hard work, Joseph garners the prison keeper's trust. The trust of the prison keeper eventually gives him access to the butler and the baker. As such, Joseph is afforded the opportunity to hear and then interpret their dreams. The butler then forgets about Joseph after being restored. He's forgotten why. So that the butler would remember when Pharaoh has a dream. Joseph is then called from the prison and interprets Pharaoh's dreams because of a coming famine. Because of these circumstances, Joseph is then made the second most powerful man in Egypt. Joseph's rise to such a position of power enables him to save his family. He saves his family, which guarantees the perpetual lineage of Judah. Since the lineage of Judah could continue, Jesus can be born. 
Because Jesus was born, he could die. Because he died, we can be saved. It's a crazy story. The, the ups and the downs and the rounds and the twists and the turns. And yet you see through it all, what? The hands of God. Always. You see, the story of Joseph is such a powerful tale because it illustrates the truth that there is always, I'll repeat this, always a divine purpose behind every situation you will ever face. Do you believe that? Absolutely no turn Joseph's journey encountered diverted him from the path that God had set before him. You see, like Joseph, it should be encouraging knowing that nothing that you ever face reaches you without first being filtered through God's sovereign will, overarching providence, and ultimately, His incredible love. Since God is love, He can act with no other motivation. In the moment, it was hard for Joseph, I'm sure, to see the valleys in such a way. But because we've got the big picture, we know in the valley God loves him, is working through these things, has a plan for them. You need to keep it in mind in looking at Joseph. Why? So you can keep it in mind with whatever valley you're facing. I know it's a difficult reality to concede. But it's a truth nonetheless, friend. Joseph suffered because God loved him. I know, I know that's, that's, that doesn't tickle the ears. But Joseph suffered because God loved him. It was specifically because God had a larger plan he wanted to accomplish in and through Joseph's life that he found himself facing so many difficult circumstances. The difficult circumstances should never be seen as evidence that God doesn't love you. Because he has a plan and a will and a purpose, they should be seen as evidence of his love. C.H. McIntosh writes to this point, the most trivial and the most important, the most likely and most unlikely circumstances are made to minister to the development of God's purposes. I know that sounds counterintuitive. I get it. That you are suffering because God loves you. But that doesn't make it any less real. It is simply a fact that while God's grace always yields his blessings, there are certain blessings that can only manifest through suffering. Isn't it the truth? Grace, as we're going to see, may have led Joseph to the mountaintop of power and prestige, but not before grace intentionally took him through deep valleys of pain and despair. Through it all, God is preparing Joseph for what lay ahead. And if the story of Joseph doesn't illustrate this point, if this reality of God's love working through your suffering if that's too big to accept, you know, just for a, a moment, I want you to look no farther than Jesus. Consider something. Did the cross represent the absence of God's love? 
or its greatest manifestation? Did God send Jesus to Calvary because he no longer loved Jesus? Or was the cross necessary for the accomplishment of God's ultimate will and purpose for his son's life? And if that's the case with Jesus, if a cross may very well be part of God working his will in and through your life, if, if, it's, if it's this way with Joseph and it's this way with Jesus, how can we honestly expect it to be anything different in our own lives? Matthew 26, verse 39, as Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, we're told that he fell on his face and he prayed. He prayed, oh, my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus was able to submit to the fact that suffering was an essential component to God accomplishing his plan in his life. Beyond this, as we look at the life of Joseph over the couple, the next several weeks, it's going to be also evident that while the free will decisions of individuals yielded greater suffering and conflict in Joseph's life, the sovereign hand of God was never deterred from his purposes. And this is an interesting component of, of Joseph's story. It's amazing that God's perfect will for Joseph was accomplished in large part through the ill will of sinners towards Joseph. Like, though in no way could anyone ever excuse the wicked actions of Joseph's brothers, right? Their hatred, their envy, their jealousy, or for that matter, the immoral sexual advances of Potiphar's wife. The truth is that in God's sovereignty, he was still able to use these things to accomplish his will. Things like favoritism, hatred, slavery, false accusation, slander, imprisonment, even forgetfulness. God used these things to accomplish his will. To this point, W.M. Taylor observes, quote, each party was seeking its own ends, and yet they were all, they were all contributing to bring about the purpose of God concerning Joseph. Oh, the marvelous wisdom of that providence of God, which thus, without doing violence to the will of any human being, lays all their actions under tribute to the furtherance of its design. Now, I'm fully aware that these type of topics often split Christians into two different camps, and, and I have no interest in engaging in any type of what I basically perceive to be petty Bible college debates that have no relevance to the church or anyone really outside of the church. I can't stand them. I, I will say this, though. Man is free to make his own decisions. And God is absolutely sovereign. The Bible says both. Man can resist the will of God, but God's will will be accomplished anyway. How the two work together, I don't know. But I can say that the two work together. The story of Joseph illustrates this reality in a way maybe no other story in Scripture does. Finally, I told you this would be a lengthy intro. Joseph's faithfulness to God and obedience 
not only fail to temper the severity of his circumstances, but his obedience, his faithfulness, and actuality end up being the very reason his suffering continued and often increased. And once again, I know that's also a difficult pill to swallow. Friend, if you think obeying God, seeking to live a godly life, possessing a godly character, if you think those things are going to make for you an easier life, you're sorely mistaken. As we'll see exemplified over and over and over again in the story of Joseph, doing the right thing will more often than not yield a more difficult life. And it's in this undeniable reality that we do discover something significant. Obeying God is more about godly character manifesting from your life in spite of your circumstances than it is a mechanism which seeks to improve one's situation. If you are seeking to obey God, hoping to be rewarded with earthly riches, perpetual health, and a blessed circumstance, Look no further than Joseph. Never once in the entire story are we, are we ever told he sins. Never once are we told he does anything wrong. Never once are we given any indication, any glimpse into a lack of wisdom. Now, that's not to say Joseph was sinless. Far from it. He was a man. But as far as the texts go, nothing that happens to Joseph occurs through his mistakes. Well, Genesis 39, verse 1. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. And Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. Now, don't forget that Joseph is no more than 17 or 18 years old when his brothers sell him into slavery and he's brought here to Egypt, to the slave market. To make matters worse, Joseph, we have no reference of Joseph ever being away from home. Imagine the scene, this situation, this young man now finds himself facing. Joseph's entire world has been crushed. I mean, as he approaches Egypt, he's still dealing with the shock of having his brother sell him into slavery. Like, like don't remove yourself from, from the, the human emotion, the, the rejection he had to have experienced, the disbelief. As he stands there, as he enters Egypt, he, he's got to be thinking, how did they sell this to dad? Maybe they've kind of, they've woken up to the error of their ways. Maybe they're going to come and get me. Will this last forever? What's going on? In one sweeping moment, Joseph goes from being the favored son of his father to now nothing more than the common slave in Egypt. Joseph doesn't know the culture. 
He doesn't speak the language. After this week-long journey, the Ishmaelite traders would have brought him to the market. They would have put him up on the auction block to be sold yet again. Joseph here, this is not kind. He's stripped naked, placed in front of the mob. He's poked. He's prodded. He's humiliated. Beyond all of this, you can imagine that there has to be some crisis of faith within Joseph. I mean, where was God in all of this? What about the dreams he had been given? What about the promises God had made? How could this be part of your plan? These would all be natural questions for anyone, including Joseph. He prays. He cries out to God. But God remains silent. Well, we're told an Egyptian by the name of Potiphar. He ends up with the winning bid purchasing Joseph from the Ishmaelite traders. As far as this man is concerned, Moses simply tells us that Potiphar was, quote, an officer of Pharaoh, the, quote, captain of the guard. This tells us that not only was Potiphar a man of influence who worked directly for Pharaoh, but the word that we have translated here as captain, it's interesting. It actually kind of gives the idea that Potiphar may have been the head of police, kind of the, the, the chief policeman within Egypt. The original word could even indicate that Potiphar, as part of his duties, was the chief executioner, hence why there's a prison probably being run on his property. Once again, don't allow yourself to be detached from the words. Potiphar, look at that, he bought Joseph. Joseph is not a freed man. He's a slave, purchased by Potiphar to serve at his wishes. Joseph is nothing but a piece of property. He has no freedom. He's subject to the whims of his master. It's pretty daunting, and yet we're told that the Lord was with Joseph. And he was a successful man. And he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. And his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord made all that he did prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in Potiphar's sight and served him. And he made him the overseer of his house. And all that he had, he put under his authority. How amazing that while Joseph's situation had no doubt taken a turn that this young man would have never expected, and while he's been separated from his father, after experiencing such a personal rejection by his brothers, and though Joseph finds himself in a foreign land, completely alone, surrounded by an unfamiliar pagan people, Joseph was not alone. The Lord was with Joseph. That's an amazing statement, isn't it? Like, consider, what tangible evidence did Joseph have of the Lord being with him? It's in, it's in moments like Joseph's that we're like, God has abandoned me. And yet, he recognizes that the presence of the Lord was still there. It would be hard to reach such a conclusion, right? If you were only looking at one's circumstances, 
Nothing indicated the presence of God. And yet, what this subtle statement tells us, I believe, is that Joseph had come very quickly to a point where he surrendered his present situation to the providence of God. Well, Joseph didn't know at all how any of these things fit into God's plan because he was confident in God's word, that God's word would never return void, that God's promises never fail. Joseph had come to the point where he could concede while he couldn't see a plan, a plan was afoot nonetheless. It was on account that he willingly adopted such a perspective that Joseph was then able to embrace a new life and a new paradigm. What had been forced upon Joseph, Joseph has willingly chose to make the best of. In response, God honors this perspective by blessing Joseph. We're told as a result, Joseph was a successful man, so much so that his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord made all that he did prosper in his hand. In the end, Potiphar decides to promote Joseph, making him the overseer of his entire house. You know, one of the things that, that gets lost in the flow of our text is the number of years that have transpired. Like It, it would be easy to read through this and think that this was, uh, you know, he gets sold to Potiphar's house by Monday. And you know, by later in the week, maybe Friday, he's now been exalted to overseer of everything, right? And yet that, that, that's, that's not exactly correct. In Genesis 41, verse 46, you don't have to turn there, but it's revealed that Joseph was 30 years old when he finally rises to power in Egypt. Now, if he's sold at 17 or 18, he rises to power at 30. Well, you can do the math, right? It means that Joseph spends somewhere between 12 and 13 years as both a slave in Potiphar's home before later being relegated as a prisoner. This is important because it tells us that Joseph's rise in Potiphar's home, it didn't happen overnight. It wasn't by the end of the week or by the end of the month or probably even by the end of the first year. It probably took quite a bit of time. You see, it, it took years of faithful service for Joseph to earn the trust of Potiphar. Probably took even longer than that for this pagan to recognize and concede what? Wow, that young man, God has his hand on that, that young man's life. On a side note, and this is important, never forget that there are no shortcuts to faithfulness. I'll repeat that. There are no shortcuts to faithfulness. Faithfulness as a character trait and a reputation is something that must be earned over time by simply being faithful with literally whatever you find in your hands. Even Jesus taught the importance of being faithful, right? Of first being faithful over little before being entrusted to be faithful over much. Joseph reaches this point where he's an overseer, where everything's entrusted. He reaches this point where, where Potiphar recognizes God's hand. He, he earns a reputation. 
It didn't happen immediately. He was given small tasks, menial tasks, degrading tasks as a slave. And yet with whatever was literally in his hands, Joseph proved faithful. And as a result, earned a reputation. Well, verse 5, so it was from the time that he had made him an overseer of his house and all that he had, that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. And the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and in the field. Thus Potiphar left all that he had in Joseph's hand and did not know what he had except for the bread which he ate. Now, as, as we seek to wrap up this first phase of Joseph's life, in Egypt, about to get to the interactions with Potiphar's wife. The scene gets set for that. We'll get to it next Sunday. But there are a few points of application from our text that I would be remiss if I didn't point out. For starters, though your situation may be practically different than that of Joseph. You're not a slave. You haven't been sold into Egypt. You haven't been betrayed by your brothers. This is different. There is a truth that there are times, though, that you feel as though you're being held captive to a set of circumstances you didn't create for yourself and you don't want to be in. Isn't that true? For example, if you were to relegate Joseph's plight to its most base level, his trial is what? He had been taken from a place he didn't want to leave, right? Placed into a dynamic he didn't want to be in and was prohibited from doing anything to change his set of circumstances. Friend, whether it be a financial downturn in the market, a family conflict, a challenging marriage, wayward children, a contentious neighbor, unexpected health crises, the fact that you find yourself presently in a job of necessity and not one of your own choosing, the truth is that those type of situations, they can feel like captivity, can't they? <laughs> You've been given a master you would have never chosen. And it's when facing these type of situations that Joseph's example here in the house of Potiphar can prove to be very helpful. To begin with, has your plight caused you to doubt God's goodness? Or has it forced you to instead fall back on the reality that God loves you and has a providential hand on whatever it is you're facing? In, in your dynamic, whatever that might be, are you blaming God for it? Joseph could have, could he? He could have gotten bitter, could have thrown a pity party, could have gotten angry. But like Joseph, have, have you gotten to a point where you've recognized that God does work all things for the good? of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. You might even feel in whatever it is you're facing, you might feel alone. You might cry out to God and feel as though those prayers go unanswered, that God has forgotten. But, but 
Like Joseph, have you gotten to the point where you can see that the Lord is still with you? Yeah, your job stinks. But the Lord's with you. Yeah, that situation's difficult. But the Lord is with you. Have you moved beyond the temporal to see the eternal? That nothing gets to you without first being filtered through Him and His love. Never forget Hebrews 13. Jesus made this promise to you. He said, I will never leave you, nor forsake you. And then the author says, so we can boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? You see, like Joseph, can you adjust your perspective? Can you recognize God's sovereignty? Can you accept that such a season, as tough as it may be, is part of his larger plan for you? Will you submit to that? I ask, since your circumstances are in his hands, what will you do with the things that are in yours? Will you be faithful regardless? Once again, William M. Taylor, he writes this. Quote, let us learn from Joseph that the first thing to do in a captivity is to acquiesce in it as the will of God. Fretting over that which we have been removed or which has been taken from us will not make things better, but it will prevent us from improving those which remain. He who is constantly looking back and bewailing what he has lost does only thereby unfit himself for improving in any of the discipline to which God has subjected him. Whereas the man who brings his mind down to the lower lot and deliberately examines how he can serve God and and what he has is already on his way to better things. We must learn from Joseph to make the best of our remaining opportunities in captivity. The one acts in faith, recognizing God's hand in his affliction, the other acts in unbelief, seeing nothing but his own calamity, and that only increases his affliction. Understand, Joseph was able to submit and serve Potiphar for one reason. Joseph understood his master was still the Lord. That's why he could do it. (laughs) If God is in control and you're in the job that you have with the boss that you want to kill, do you realize that, that that is God's boss in your life? No, not you don't know him. You don't know my boss. No, I do know God, though. Once again, if you are where you are because God has a plan and a purpose, will you recognize God's authority? Potiphar, a pagan Egyptian executioner. Joseph, eh, my master, still God. Between me and God, there's Potiphar. 
So I'm going to submit. And I'm going to serve. You see, God not only blessed Joseph, but he blessed Potiphar's home. If you'll choose to do the same, understand God will bless you. He'll take care of you. You know, it's fascinating to consider. But Joseph's experience in Potiphar's home, the text we just read, it illustrates an interesting reality that many of us don't consider. God can bless your workplace for your sake. Like That's what the text said, didn't it? Joseph is being faithful in Potiphar's home. He's being faithful with what's in his hands. God is blessing Joseph. He's not blessing Potiphar. He's blessing Joseph. But then by default, who's receiving a blessing? Potiphar. Because God is blessing Joseph. You see how this works? How interesting to think that God could bless your workplace because of you. And for no other reason. Because Joseph possessed the right perspective, because he focused on being faithful in his servant, God blessed him with a testimony. In his commentary on the life of Joseph, John Phillips, he wrote these challenging words. And then you want to talk about tough. Here it is. The man who knows God should be the best man on the job. The man who knows God should be the best man on the job. So often, people are looking how you handle your job. And they know you're a Christian, and they're wanting to reach conclusions about God from you. Potiphar watches Joseph, and what does he reach? reach he said, God's hands are all over that kid. It's amazing to me. Running out of time, there's one more application. And this application stems directly from Joseph being a type of Jesus. Follow me here. While Joseph's involvement in the house of Potiphar was forced upon him, do you realize that Jesus' Jesus's involvement in yours was willing? God blessed Potiphar because of Joseph. But Joseph was only there because he had no choice. But God will bless you because of Jesus. But Jesus is there because he willingly surrendered himself. He willingly came to serve you. It's interesting. But when Potiphar saw that God was blessing his home on account of the fact that Joseph was blessed. Okay, follow me? So Joseph, man, that kid, I don't know what it is about him. There's some divine influence. God's blessing him, and as a result, he's blessing me. What did Potiphar do in that moment? He did something very wise, something we should give him credit for. Potiphar, in that moment, not only allowed Joseph then the freedom to act, but wisely exalted Joseph's position in his home. Potiphar sees that his home is being blessed for one reason, Joseph. So what does Potiphar do? Well, I'm going to exalt him and give him authority over it all. 
He makes him an overseer. He places all under his authority. May I ask? Since Jesus was sent by God to serve, are you letting him? And beyond this, have you recognized the source of your blessing? My home is richly blessed. Do you know why? Do you know why you have a blessed life? God is blessing your home because of Jesus. All blessings come from Jesus. All blessings descend from Jesus. And if you realize your home is blessed, not because you work hard to provide a living, not because of this, not because, like if you recognize that when it's all said and done, my kids are blessed, my home is blessed, my life is blessed because of Jesus and his grace, and that's all I have and all I need. If you understand that, you know what you'll naturally do? You'll place all that you have under his authority. That is the wise man. The wise man. God bless Potiphar because of Joseph. He will bless you if you make a decision to exalt Jesus. So Lord,